I want you to take your Bibles and open them to Exodus chapter 19 as we sort of conclude one series on Exodus, the journey to freedom continues, and and it's sort of a prelude to the next series on the Ten Commandments. And it's an awesome prelude, if I I do say so. It's an awesome prelude, and I hope you'll agree uh, from the text, if nothing else. On the other hand, I while well, I'm trying to prop Andrew, he, did, did I hear him right? He basically gave you a card blanche to not get anything out of this service with the kids. I'm, it's kind of what he did. Shame on you, Andrew, wherever you are. So you deserve that deadpan response those guys gave you. Okay, so I just cut myself off anyway. So um, I get it. We got kids. Some of them got to go. If they can stay, awesome. Kids, I actually have a point in this message where I want to talk just to you, okay? So be watching and be waiting for it, okay? Will you do that? So um, one of my favorite uh, stories is of an old country bumpkin guy. He's on his way to church. He's followed Jesus all of his life. And some intellectual skeptic approached him and said, Sir, tell me, how big is your God? Now, how would you respond to that? His response was, my God is so big that the heavens of the heavens cannot contain him. And he's so small, he can live in my heart. That's really cool. Because that country bumpkin gave two great theological truths in one sentence. Without without using the terms transcendence and imminence. Those are great terms. God is transcendent. That means he's otherly. He's out there. He's far. He's greater. He's awesome. He's separate from us. But God is also imminent. He's near. He comes to live within us through the virtues of his son, if we know him. And I don't assume that upon all of you or those of you watching online. God resides in the highest heavens and in the lowliest hearts. And Isaiah said as much. He said, thus says the Holy One who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. That's transcendence. And with him who is humble and contrite in his heart. That's imminence. To revive, key word today, to revive the heart's of the humble, and to revive the spirits of those who are contrite. Would you like to be revived today? I'm asking you the question. Would you like to be revived today? Thank you. Then you must draw near to God. Would you like to come near to God? Do you even know what you're asking? Or do you even know what you're agreeing to? This passage, as I said, is awesome. And I'm going to read it almost in its entirety. And I want you to listen to it with all of your hearts. We need, our, we need to have good heads on our shoulders and good hearts in our chest. And may God give us both here in the next few moments. Chapter 19, the Israelites have, having been redeemed out of Egypt, They found themselves a couple months later at the base of Mount Sinai where they will receive the Ten Commandments. And 
See if you see both imminence, nearness, and transcendence, awesomeness, separateness, otherliness in this passage. Verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Wait a minute. Isn't Jacob and Israel the same? Remember that. We'll come back to that. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you'll be my treasure, my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yeah, right. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. They didn't have a wardrobe they brought with them, remember? And be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits, barriers, boundaries for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the people, uh, uh, from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and washed their garments. And he said to them, be ready on the third day. Do not go near women. A little form of contraception, divine that is. Here it is right in the Bible. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down to Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look. And many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest 
and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, If you want revival in your life, personally, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and again, I'm not assuming all of you know Jesus or you in the listening audience, but if you do, there are four things you need to know. You need to remember, that is. You need to remember where you once were. You need to remember whose you are now. You need to remember what you once promised. And you need to remember to whom you made those promises. Are you ready? There's your outline. Here we go. Number one, remember, if you want revival, where you once were. Now, God has just told them, I just delivered you. I just redeemed you. I just saved you out of Egypt on eagle's wings, no less. But notice what he says in verse 3. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the house of Israel. Now, as I asked earlier, aren't they the same? If you remember the story, Jacob, here's Jacob, called by God. His name means deceiver, heel grabber, literally, one who deceives. And that's, he certainly lived down to his name. But then when he wrestled with God, God changed his name to Israel for the praise of God. So they are the same. So why does he get redundant? Or is he being redundant by saying, speak to Jacob and to the people of Israel? Here's another question. Why do we need to remember where we once were? And here's your answer. Because sometimes who you were looks a lot like who you are. Sometimes who you were looks a lot like who you are. Do you remember um, Peter? Jesus took Simon and named him Peter, Rock. Remember that? But every once in a while, Simon would act like an idiot, or Peter would act like an idiot, and Jesus would call him Simon. Remember that? Simon, Simon. That was never a good thing when Jesus called you by your old name, much less twice. My two boys, my two youngest boys, were the bane of my existence for about four or five years. And people would come up to me and say, how can we pray for them? I would always say, pray that they'll be converted, whatever converted means. Now, it's not that my theology was messed up, because they both claimed to be saved, but as it turned out, one wasn't saved, one was saved. Both of them needed to be converted. So it was really a good prayer. Well, here's a question for you. For you. Who are you right now? Who are you right this moment? You say, well, I got a new name when I trusted Jesus. Yes, you did. But what does it look like? If you want revival, you need to remember where you once were. Paul reminds us that in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember a couple times. He says, therefore, remember That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, by which is uh, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
strangers to the covenants of promise, no hope without God in this world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're told to remember these things, and you need to remember who you were. And then you need to remember whose you are now. This is the personal, imminent side of God here. He reminds them again, I brought you out of Egypt. You see that in verse 4. I took you out on eagle's wings, which is really figurative of, of, of the swiftness by which God took them out of Egypt. I, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burst a bubble here just so that I don't like doing this, but it's important that I do. How many of you ever heard, have ever heard a sermon, a uh, dramatic sermon that eagles, that, you know, because this is not the only time this metaphor is used in the Bible where God takes us up on eagles' wings, you know, uh, Isaiah 40. How many of you ever heard a story or the dramatic thing where eagles will kick their eaglets out of the nest and they'll go tumbling down, tumbling down, and then the, the mother comes right underneath them and sweeps them up on her wings? How many of you ever heard that? You heard that? Okay, that's just not true, all right? That doesn't happen. I, I, I defy anybody to find proof of that ever happening. Now, I have, it is true that they will, they'll be near them, and they'll be close to them, and they'll be there. If they, but when they kick them out of the nest, they expect them to fly. And by the way, what they do do, and by the way, this word eagle here in verse 4 is a, is a Hebrew word for the griffin vulture. And don't think the American bald eagle here, okay? Or a griffin eagle. They're both, you know, predators, and they're both, you know, eat dead things. Either way, what they do here, here's this particular one that's mentioned here in the Hebrew is is they all take a long time to mature, but especially this one. Many many weeks go by before these birds leave these eaglets leave the nest. One thing the parents do, they don't come under him and fly up under him like some of you have heard, but they do kick him out of the nest. They will. They'll just kick him right out. By the time these eaglets are ready to leave the nest, they look just like their parents almost. You can't hardly tell the difference. But it takes a long time in the nest. You get pretty comfortable in that nest. They don't want to leave. You can tell. You, well, you can watch videos. They don't want to leave the nest. But the parents literally will kick them out. And I got to think about that. I could really go to town on this right now if I wanted to. Because I've seen a few people who should have got kicked out a long time ago. I'm not looking at anybody particular here. I want you to know. But God expects us to fly when we get kicked out of the nest. I remember the guy who discipled me. He's now with the Lord. I, his name was Tom Hammond. I used, when I got saved, when he discipled me, I called him every single day for six months. Can you imagine getting a phone call from me every single day for six months? Yeah, he couldn't either. He finally told me to stop. He said, Pat, I don't own you. God does. Be his. Go out. He's kicking me out of the nest. I needed it. I didn't want it. I like the comfort. I like the guy telling me what I ought to believe. We've got to remember whose we are right now if we want revival. In fact, it is this very truth that delivered me from one of my addictions. I was a, I was a marijuana addict, but I, I remember reading for the first time 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit is in you? You are not your own. 
you have been bought, redeemed, purchased with a price. So glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You want revival, you need to remember where you came from. You need to remember whose you are now. And you need to remember what you have promised. Anybody here ever made promises to God? You don't need to raise your hand, but I'm guessing a lot of you have. You got any promises hanging out there right now? Promises to read your Bible every day? Promises to share your faith with someone? Promises to raise your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Promises to break habits and things that are detrimental to your walk with God and you're not doing it? You see what, in verse 8, you saw that in verse 8, didn't you? Moses tells the people what God says, yep, we're in, we're all in. Moses, tell God we're all in. It's just, it just kills me because we know what these people, they're, they're so defiant. They're going to break these promises. But what I love, this is the grace of God, what I love is that God doesn't then interject with, you're all a bunch of liars. I know the beginning from the end. You're all going to just turn on me. He doesn't do that. Did God know that? Of course he did. I remember the first time I read Psalm 78. And Psalm 78 is a long psalm. I remember the first time I read it. Brand new Christian, reading through it. It's just a cycle of disobedience, disobedience, obedience, disobedience. Calling upon the Lord and falling back into sin. <laughs> I can still remember getting to verse 38 and thinking, Oh my goodness, Lord. Why are you putting up with these people? And then I read verse 39, which says, Then he remembered that they were but flesh, as a wind that passes by and does not come again. Have you ever read that? And as a brand new Christian, God showed me, Oh, you're going to need this mercy too, so hang on to this one. I'm glad that God remembers that I am but flesh, aren't you? And that we... Even the righteous stumble in many ways. And his grace never stops. God knows that you've messed up. He knows you've made promises that some of which you're not keeping or, or you've been intermittent with them. He knows that. And I got a word for you. He still loves you. He still loves me. But he loves humility. So acknowledge that. Another psalm, the psalm, in Psalm 138, it says, Though the Lord be on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. God hates pride. He is just as drawn to humility as he is repelled by pride. Humility is like a magnet to the heart of God. And so be humble if you've made commitments. Remember what you've once promised. And, and remember the psalm, another, I'm replete with psalms today, but Psalm 76, 11, make promises and keep them. God wants you to keep promise. He wants you to make promises, and he wants you to keep them. So remember what you've promised, those of you who have. One last thing, and for the balance of our time, and we go from imminence to transcendence, remember to whom you've made those promises. Remember who you're talking about. You're talking about the living God, not some teddy bear. He's a lion. If the first eight verses draw God near to us, the last one sort of separate him from us. The, the, the last verses, verses 9 through 25, are just really 
emphasizing the otherliness of God. Here's how Philip Ryken put it. Here was the awesome dilemma the Israelites faced. They were being drawn into a personal relationship with a holy God who was too dangerous for them even to approach. In the reading, did you catch all the terrifying imagery? Clouds, lightning, thick clouds, thunder, earthquake, the voice of God, smoke. And verse 18 says the whole mountain was on fire. And they trembled. You better believe they trembled. No movie could ever depict anything like this. What was God doing? He was putting his otherliness on display. His greatness, his power, his grandeur, his holiness, his omnipotence. Our great God. All there. Another psalm. (laughs) Psalm 50 verse 21 came to my mind. Even earlier this morning, it came to my mind, where where God is is confronting the people of Israel. He says, you thought I was altogether like you. Well, I got news for you. I'm not. That's what he was saying. That's in the context. If I I was hungry, would I ask you? I own a cattle on a thousand hills for crying out loud. The crying out loud part isn't in there, but it's pretty much implied. So at any rate... Is it any wonder with all of this, this grandeur, all of this power on display that God says put limits? You saw that in verse 12. Put limits. I don't know what they were, some demarcation, some if it was lumber or if it was you know, some yarn. I don't know what they used to separate the base, the mountain, from the camp. We have a New Testament word for limits. It's called trespass. There are many New Testament words for sin. And one of the most descriptive is the word trespass. Forgive us our trespasses. We know what a trespass is. You've seen the no trespassing sign. That sign tells you something, right? I have freedom right up to here and no more because if I cross over, boom. I mean, if you knew that the farmer had a gun and he would shoot you for crossing the fence, you probably wouldn't. Well, God says, you do that. They cross over. I'm shooting them. Isn't that what he said? They're dead. In fact, nobody helped attend to them. They just rot right there. That's basically what he says here. This is serious business. When we defy the holy God, we trespass. And by the way, some of you don't like the limitations that God puts on you, but you need to know that they are a mercy to you and to me. They're a mercy to us. I mean, God didn't wait for 100 curious Jews to cross that trespassing line and smack them dead and say, oh, by the way, don't do that. No, he gives them the warning not to do that. And this is where it gets really, really interesting and very, very practical as we bring our time to a conclusion. The last Five verses, and you may have picked it up the way I changed my voice inflection. But just reading it, you might not have. But in the last five verses, there's a dialogue between God and Moses. And God says to Moses, now tell them there's this, you know, that there's a limit there. Don't go beyond the limits or I'm going to break through, I'm going to kill them. And did you catch how Moses responded? Basically, is why do we need to do that, God? I've already told him that. Seriously. 
And yet he, why would God, and he had told them that earlier in the text, he, he basically said the same thing he'd said earlier. Why? Because we need to be reminded, that's why, right? Here's a little Bible trivia for those of you who know your Bibles. What did Nadab and Abihu, the 70 sons of Bethshema, or or I'm sorry, 70 men at Bethshemesh, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 men at Bethshemesh, and Uzzah, son of Abinadab, all have in common? Every single one of them treated the presence of God lightly. And yeah, you're right, he killed them all. Nadab and Abihu, we might say they were guilty of a, the sin of outright rebellion. They were the, remember, they were the priest who were the first ones, first day on the job, first time the tabernacle's been erected, bang, God kills them because they offer strange fire. Bad idea trying to go about worship on their own. You've got the 70 men of Bethshemesh. They were the ones, if you recall, when the ark showed up, they peeked into it to see it curiously, and God killed them. So let's call that the sin of morbid or irreverent curiosity. And then there's Uzzah. I don't think I've ever read the story of Uzzah without saying, wow, I mean, even though I know the story, it's like, gee whiz, God. I mean, that's pretty rough, isn't it? Do you remember the story? All of them centered around the ark of God. The ark of God represented, represented, represented the presence of God. Wasn't the presence of God, represented it. But that's a pretty big deal. And uh, so in 1 Samuel 4... A fight breaks out with the Philistines. The carnal priest says, I, I know, we'll bring the ark. It can save us. It can save us, not God. Well, guess what? It didn't save them. It got captured. They got beaten. It, the ark, ended up in Philistine hands. That didn't go so well for them. <laughs> they start lopping off, dying, getting sick. They said, geez, this thing's a curse. Give it back to the Jews. And they do. They put it on a cart, goes in there, goes back into Israeli territory, and it, it is there that the 70 men of Beth Shemesh peeked in and died. That's pretty much where it stopped then. So this is what the pa- passage tells us in 1 Samuel 7. And the men of Kirith Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the, look at it, to the house of Abinadab on the hill. A long time passed. The text says 20 years, but in whole, 40 years go by before David ascends to the throne. He's, and, and the whole time, for 40 years, the Bible says God was blessing, blessing, blessing the house of Abinadab. And David basically, basically said, we want that blessing. Let's bring that thing back. So bring it back. So they, so they put it on a cart. Bad idea. Supposed to, priests are supposed to carry it in poles, but they put it on this cart. And as they're bringing it back, the cart hits a pothole. And Uzzah is right by there. And he reaches over and steadies it. It's tipping. Makes sense, right? God kills him right there. 
drops him dead right there. Now, just before that incident that took his life took place, we read this. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of who? The sons of Abinadab. We're driving the new cart. Made sense? That ark that brought blessing to the house of Abinadab had been there for an entire generation. They literally grew up around the ark. Familiarity breeds. Uh, it's more than that. It does breed contempt at times, but they just got so used to it, they got smug. They got cozy, just like some of you watching online right now. You still haven't got out of your jammies. Sorry. Forty years. Didn't think anything of it. Reached out to steady it. But God hadn't changed. And you don't, do, you don't go trampling into the presence of God willy-nilly. Here's what the Bible says. Look at the text. I got it for you. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, and anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there besides the ark of God. All right. If you are 18 years old or younger, I want you to stand up right now. Stand up. If you're 18 years old or younger, stand up. Okay? All right. I have a word for you. I have a word for every one of you because I'm really concerned for all of you. I'm calling it the Uzzah syndrome. The Uzzah syndrome is not when familiarity breeds contempt, but rather it breeds complacency. Here it is. When familiarity doesn't breed contempt, but it breeds complacency, smugness. You've been around it all your life. You were raised in Christian homes. You have perfect moms and dads. Okay, maybe not. They're not perfect, but they love Jesus. They've brought you to church. They've taught you the truth. You've heard it over and over and over. Incessantly, you've heard it all of your lives. And if you're not careful, you're going to become like Uzzah. Where familiarity, familiarity doesn't breed contempt, but it breeds complacency. And if you would want to hear my greatest concern for all of you young people, is not that you get too close to God. My concern is you get too comfy with God. God's not meant to be comfy with. He does draw near to us, but never at the expense of you understanding He is an awesome God. Do you hear that, young people? He is an awesome God. And revere him, love him, praise him, and adore him as a true, great, grandeur, holy God. And you'll be revived, and you won't fall into the complacency. You may be seated. Thanks so much for listening to that. I got a text this morning just before I came from a woman who used to be a member of this church for many years. Some of you would remember her. Her name was Pat. She was forced to leave when we changed our name. 
And uh, so very, very dear, very sweet. Uh, and she's a numbers woman. I mean, she's one of these crazy gals that just remembers all kinds of numbers, birth dates, cer- certain dates, anniversary dates. And she always sends me a happy birthday. And she always reminds me of the anniversary of the day I came to Sayreville Church 22 years ago today. Oh, hey, they didn't do that in the first two services. Thank you. And she said, I just want to remind you, thank the Lord for you, yada, yada. She goes, you know, I used to have you in my home every year to eat. And she did. He had a little house, all 12 of us. We came, there was 12 of us, only 12. 22 years later, there's 52 of us. And as I thanked her, I thought about those kids. And I don't want my kids to be comfy. I don't want them to get complacent. Any more than I want you, whether you're a young person or an older individual, don't get comfy with God. Don't get complacent with God. He's not a teddy bear. He's a lion. So remember where you once were. Remember whose you are now. Remember what you once promised. And remember to whom you made those promises. James probably puts it best, doesn't he? Draw near to God. God will draw near to you. If you're not a Christian and I'm assuming some of you are not Christians. You don't need to climb a mountain. You need to kneel at a cross. Because Jesus can fulfill all of those commandments, all of God's righteous demands, and then take your sins and mine upon himself and die for us and rise again. And if you have never trusted him as your Savior, don't climb the mountain. Kneel at the cross. And then, when you're near, you can also fear. It's a good combination to be near to God and fear him at the same time. And may God bring revival to your life. Let's pray together. Our Father, with great, great gratitude, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this awesome passage of Scripture that teaches us of your nearness, your imminence, and your, and your greatness and your uh, transcendence, your otherliness, your power. Oh God, help us to be true worshipers of you, the living God, and all of your greatness and power and awesomeness. And thank you that Jesus broke through to come to us, to bring you as near as we could possibly be through the cross. I pray for those who are listening online and those in this room who've never trusted Jesus, if that's you, dear friend, you don't need to go climbing a mountain. You need to kneel before a cross, the cross of Jesus, be humble and trust him. For those of us who are following you, Lord, help us to remember who we were. That's a healthy thing. Whose we are. (laughs) We're yours, Lord us to remember these things. Promises we've made, 
Keep us humble and faithful. Because you're the one we made those promises to. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.